This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 322, recording on Thursday, July 18th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, Becca Shinsky, we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. So, you're going to hear, so this, we're, we're, we're going to play around with some programming over the next couple of weeks and months, um, trying some new stuff we out. Some, we might add some additional episodes in the week. We're just feeling, feeling like we want to do a little bit more, a little bit different. Building some new rooms under the wheelhouse. That's right, yeah. I, think, I don't think you'd do that, because then you're outside the wheelhouse. It, the wheelhouse is a room. <laughs> Go with my metaphor, The wheelhouse Jeff. is a room, which is really like it's a mind-blowing thing to we're, say. We're um, expanding the wheelhouse, redecorating. I don't, I don't know. know. I think the thing <laughs> is, we don't just have one wheelhouse. Mm. We have wheels houses. That's how you say that. Like attorneys general, wheels houses. That was completely grammatically correct. Yeah, that's not right. Um, so, so first up today, so Rebecca and I are going to do our normal talking about new cool books, reading stuff for the first half of the show. Then the second half of the show, you're going to hear an interview with me and Gretchen McCulloch, who has a new book out. Well, it will be coming out um, as you're hearing this on Tuesday, July 23rd. It's called Because Internet. And it's about how the internet is changing the English language. I thought it was an awesome book. It's an awesome topic. She runs a really interesting podcast called Lingthusiasm, which is about language. Um, she writes regularly about language and the internet uh, for a whole bunch of different places. I love that her podcast. She wrote a really famous um, essay for The Toast, RIP, Pour Out the 40, about Doge memes, which was great. <laughs> and she still says she gets emails about Doge memes. But, you know, we're, we talk about, you know, what, what's, should we be panicking about internet language? What about the internet has changed? Um, we talk about chat as being kind of the ultimate, at this moment in time, uh, example of a new technology serving an existing need and totally changing it. So you're going to want to stick around for that. It's about 25 minutes long. Go check out our book. I, I really recommend it. I blew through it. Um, if you care about these things, all she has a really good chapter about emoji, really good chapter about why linguists themselves are super excited about the internet. And I'm not going to spoil it here, but go check that out. But anyway, you'll hear us get out of the show, stick around, and let us know what you think about that, inter- and that, that internet-focused episode, mini-episode built on the back of this one as we do more different kinds of programs. We want to make stuff you guys like that's still within the penumbra of interest that we've established here. So... Um, but we're going to get into the main show. But before we do that, let's uh, do a quick sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dad 
dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series, from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsy Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tom and Series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right. I guess this is follow up, ongoing, you know, yeah, kind of a situation. Tell me about Bookstores Against Borders still cooking. Yeah, it's still cooking is the top line. Originally, the fundraiser, which we've mentioned a few times, was uh, that was started by A Room of One's Own, an awesome independent bookstore in Madison, Wisconsin. It was set to run just through the holiday weekend of July 5th, 6th, and 7th. Several indie bookstores were donating a portion of their sales to Races, which again is a nonprofit based in Texas that provides free and low-cost legal support to people and their families who are incarcerated in the immigrant camps at the border. Their original goal was, um, I think their original goal was to get five stores to raise $1,000, and then they bumped up the goal to get 20 stores to raise $5,000, and then 50, and then 75. And as of this recording on July 18th, they have raised more than $100,000 to go to races, Um, 165 independent bookstores, small presses, and other literary organizations have participated. So the movement is growing and continuing. Um, It sounds really like they did not imagine that a response of this magnitude or length would occur for them and just awesome job hats off these are like more than heroes of the week we've got heroes possibly of the year here um, in the literary world for starting this sort of gathering book people together and mobilizing them for this cause so just awesome job bookstores against borders and this means that if you're listening and you haven't participated yet you can find the bookstores against borders fundraiser online where you can donate directly to races or you can make a purchase from one of the participating stores and it supports the work that they're doing there. So hats off to them. This is a follow also follow up continuing interest. So one thing we've talked about on and off is the market appetite for special editions, early releases for authors to capture the excess interest that the hardest of core fans have for the authors and series they love. Um, this is a an idea you and I first bandied about in a uh, 
a seminar we went to that we sort of talked about, like, what if there were for big titles and big authors mm. more, and it happens from time to time, more special editions that are two, three, five times the price of the hardcover that are just special somehow. They don't have to be signed, just like maybe you get them a little bit earlier, they've got a little extra special sauce on them. And it's not unrelated to this conversation we've been having about review copies, what you would pay for to get something a little bit earlier, a little bit something special. This is related to that. So this is a new edition of Fire and Blood, which... If you don't know anything about R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, it's going to be a little confusing. This is a, kind of a you know, a tributary to that, that main river of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's a set of two prequels that describe one of the families that plays important. It doesn't really matter too much, except just to say it's not actually you know Game of Thrones or Dance of Dragons or anything like this. It's this ancillary thing. And there's a special edition that Subterranean Press puts out, which is a sci-fi and fantasy imprint that kind of specializes in special editions. And this one, they're doing 52 copies, or they did... Yeah, no, they, they're coming out still. Before they're even promoted or anything, the 52 editions, a 1000 bucks each, signed and numbered, with the special illustrations by a really famous fantasy artist. It does look beautiful, um, in its own way, but they're all gone. A thousand bucks each. They sold out quickly. I guess I'm asking you, Rebecca, knowing what we know about the heat of interest in this series, are you surprised or not surprised that this sold out so fast? Not at all. Actually, the thing that I was surprised about when I clicked on this is the headline is new thousand dollar Song of Ice and Fire book already sold out. And then when I found out that sold out means they've sold 52 yeah. copies, I was like, you you could have sold a lot more than that. Or I think they could have if they wanted to keep it super limited and exclusive, they could have sold these 52 copies for probably a lot more than a thousand dollars. There's a second There's edition also, that's yeah. coming out of the same the same volume um, that's going to be three hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, that's still available. It doesn't say how many of those they're going to do, so I'm not exactly uh, sure. Did yeah, you miss that? Did I miss that? Seven hundred and fifty okay. of them. There's a limited edition. It's signed and numbered hardcovers and a custom. Oh, there case. it is right now. Yeah. Um, still a pretty expensive thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think this is one of those things that I, I would find it very interesting to say, like, what's the, oh, this week, um, the, the new um, Colson Whitehead book, Nickel Boys, mm, Nickel right, Boys, came out, yeah. also a beautiful edition. I've heard it's great, but... Um, it is, it's a beautiful It's book. a beautiful book. I just wonder if, the, if there was an edition that came out a month ago, and it was like gold foil, and they were signed, mm. 500 of them, numbered and signed, could they have sold those for 100 bucks a piece, and would it have been worth it? I'm not sure about that. What do you think? I think they probably could have. And this sounds similar to me to kind of the special editions that Powell's does yeah, for indispensable. their um, indispensable. Thank you. I couldn't remember what it was called where you get there. It's hard covers that are usually slip cased or there's something special about it. And it's a little bit more expensive than the new hardcover mm -hmm. is. But I think Whitehead has the kind of dedicated audience. I don't know that you could sell a bunch of thousand dollar new Colson Whiteheads. You could probably sell a few of them, um, but I think you could sell some $50 or $100 very special hardcover editions of a new Colson Whitehead book. Um, I'm kind of just surprised. I'd love to talk to someone at Subterranean Press about how they selected the quantities yeah. here. Like, why just 52 of the $1,000 ones? Surely the global 
like the fanatic and global audience for Game of Thrones could fuel purchasing more than a thousand of those, but maybe they just really wanted to keep it super exclusive. Mm. Um, also, those the fewer of them there are, the more valuable they potentially become over time as collector's editions. So maybe that's part of it, um, is spend $1,000 not just because you're a super fan, but because this is kind, it could be kind of an investment um, if this becomes a valuable, rare thing. Yeah to have but that was my only piece of surprise really was like of course they sold a bunch of them of course people love this and the fact that the series isn't over yet is i think continuing to drive gathering up what you can of what's available Mm -hmm. already but i think they could have sold more and i guess related to that is boy if if you sold 75 dollars special editions of the starless sea a month earlier you could Mm -hmm. i mean that's they're already selling 200 to $500 on eBay. Why not capture some of that? I mean, is it just so, are we, are we just so committed and connected to the street date and everything that goes into the street date that all the books are going to get it, whatever, that you don't want to truck with having to manage how are you going to supply those and blah, blah, blah. And it's Penguin Random House. They're a multi-billion dollar international conglomerate. Maybe the marginal value isn't there. But I'm just not sure. I still feel like maybe it is there. I don't know. I mean, I think they could find out without breaking the street dates, too. Like, if you are breaking the street date to release a special edition early, you've got a couple confounding factors of is it the special edition or is it that you get to read the book early? Um, HarperCollins has done this a couple of times with um, romances that typically Mm -hmm. are published in mass market paperback. And I believe that it was a Sarah McLean most recently that they also did a hardcover edition, which is a really interesting choice for fans and for readers of like, you know, you're just used to waiting for the new Sarah McLean. And are you going to pay $7.99 for the mass market that day? Or is it worth it to you um, on the same date, you're not getting the content any earlier to go spring for the $27.95 hardcover. Mm -hmm. And I think there were fewer of those, but that's a really interesting test for a passionate fan base. And I think I'd love to see a publisher do something like that outside of romance and just try it with one of those rare authors who is a name brand. Like, if you had a new Neil Gaiman that was going to be a trade paperback, but you offered a special edition hardcover on the same day, that's really interesting data of who just wants the story Mm -hmm. and is going to take the least expensive version of it. And who wants to have a, you know, special fancy version of the book. The starless sea might be another interesting case for that. Or like Toni Morrison, of course her new books are going to come out in hardcover, but if they were going to be like dropping multiple formats on the same day, it would be really interesting to see who went to which versions and in what frequency. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly a comp, but you know, you and I were saying there's not that many authors we would pay a whole lot of money to get the the same book earlier, but if if day and date there was the regular edition and a $60 uh signed numbered Toni Morrison Boy, mm-hmm. I'd really think about that um, myself. Yeah. Or like um, to go back to Marilyn Robinson, yeah. our other you know household fave, if there were going to be a new Gilead book, mm. I would buy, rather than just buying the new one in hardcover, I would buy like a special hardcover boxed set of all of them if they like did new covers for all of them and made them unified or something. Like I would pony up mm-hmm. on that day. Uh, also from the Department of Ongoing Interest, I actually have a Luminary ad running against this because I've been retargeted because I probably just said Luminary <laughs> into a microphone and they got me. Um, again, this isn't related to books, but related to things we are interested in. Apple, we've heard, now have plans to start funding original podcasts. 
I guess wildly unsurprising here to me, we are in a mm-hmm. arms race when it comes to audio programming and TV programming of almost every kind, especially premium audio and premium video. I think the commoditized video has turned into its own space. Like the YouTubes, Instagram, Snapchats of the world seems to be different. Like that's ad supported where Mm -hmm. this is subscription supported. Apple TV plus is going to be a subscription service. It's confusingly named because the hardware you have is called an Apple TV. I hate these namings. <laughs> HBO Max, Apple TV, Apple TV Plus. Just give it a name where you don't have to add a modifier. Anyway, that's a separate rant. Um, but Apple's getting to the business. Maybe feeling the heat from the luminaries, the Spotify's of the world, the anchors, the audibles where you want people to pay you, so you got to have the thing the people will pay you for. Um... Not a surprise. I don't know if there's actually anything Mm -mm. interesting here, except they probably have... Apple does have the most money of any of these people, maybe outside of Facebook. I don't actually know. In terms of raw profit, I think Apple makes more money on a quarterly basis um, than even Facebook does, which is a high-margin business to start out with. So if checkbook size is at all a factor, which, let's be honest, it is... This is the the big rich player coming to the poker table with a big fat wad of sweaty cash, mm-hmm. and it does change the dynamics of the game. Doesn't mean they're going to win, but it changes the dynamics of the game for sure. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see who they get for these original podcasts. And like, I'm assuming that Apple has more money to do these kinds of things than Spotify does. So, if Spotify succeeded in getting the Obamas, was it because Apple wasn't in the conversation yet, or mm-hmm. who is Apple talking to? I think that's going to be interesting to watch. We were chatting about this on the staff Slack a little bit, and I think that this is one of those user retention mm-hmm. moves. And my my only real question here is: Is Apple? seeing itself lose market share or listener share, however you want to think about it, to Spotify or to other services? Do they even have a way of knowing that? Or are they just afraid they're going to because there's so much competition now and because other places are launching original podcasts also with the idea of attracting listeners or keeping them in one ecosystem? Uh, Apple has definitely struggled with Apple Music in the US. I think it it does well in um, other countries or better in other countries than it's doing here. But this looks to me like like uh, motivating Apple users to stick around and keep listening to podcasts and Apple podcasts rather than like migrating over to Spotify where you can still mm-hmm. listen to most of the shows you listen to anywhere and get some new things. They're doing the like, hey, we've got new things too that you can also only get here. As a listener, I continue to hate this because I don't want to have to listen to things in a mm-hmm. million different places, but it's not surprising to see them do it. If anything, it's surprising that it took this long. Yeah, and I'm guessing this says it's going to be part of Apple TV+. Plus. I'm skeptical of that. I would assume they would roll into Apple Music because Apple Music is the mm-hmm. thing that competes, as you say, with Spotify. And this is basically coming to feature parody. If someone's doing a checker on a checker decision whether or not to do Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I think Apple wants to be able to say, we also have premium original podcasts that you can't get anywhere else, which is one thing they can't say right now because they've been the agnostic plat- directory, essentially, that serves podcasts from all over the place, has been good for their device sales because it's really easy, has been good for them in a whole bunch of different ways except for the one which is pay us for stuff you can't get everywhere else because our their move has been to be the node around which the podcast universe 
um, sort of slowly spins or more quickly spins. I mean, after all, the name podcast is because it was an iPod. I mean, you can't get any more closely um, associated with a medium than that. But just the industry seems to be moving a different way, or at least the people who want to make big money on it want to move it a different way. Those two things, I guess, are not necessarily the same thing, the way that the industry is actually moving versus the mm-hmm. way that people who want to make billions of dollars want it to move. Sometimes you can do that. Um, sometimes you can't. I think, I think if to this point, it's been so good for the podcasting ecosystem writ large for Apple to be basically a benign dictator about how podcasts are distributed. I hope this is only a bolt-on to that. I think they would find enormous blowback if they did something to the way that you know, your, your rank-and-file podcasts like us um, were distributed and available. But I, I, don't, I really don't see that happening. So, um, Oh, we're, we're, we're on bookstores. Local bookstores. We're on bookstores. Yeah, tell me about we this one. Good, good news, especially if you live in Chicago, but great news for the bookstore world in general. The first black woman-owned bookstore in Chicago is now open for business. It's called Semicolon, and it's a bookstore, community space, and a gallery for Chicago's street art scene. It opened last week, um, and it is just one of a handful of woman-owned bookstores in Chicago, and currently it's the only one that's owned by a black woman. It represents uh, the the name semicolon comes from the fact that it represents the point in the sentence where it could stop, but the author decided to proceed, says the mm. owner D.L. Mullen, uh, who's an author and an editor who has a PhD in literary theory. So they really know all sides of the book world. And um, they originally planned to open a Soho House-esque literary arena called the Athenaeum Librarium, which would have been a mixture of library co-working space and membership-only Ooh. club. Ooh, but, Ooh got yeah, right? chills on that one. Wow. I know. Wow, okay. I want like a fancy membership card to that that's nice and heavy, yeah. like those, you know, American Express Platinum right. cards. Yeah. Um, after that, after they looked at that, project and it was i guess repeatedly plagued by construction woes as they say in this piece they decided to spin the concept into a bookstore and they renamed it semicolon for that reason of like you they could have stopped <laughs> but they decided to keep going um they're so excited to be creating this space and hoping that it will be a place where other black women and people can just you know, love it as much as they do. She says, you don't get into book selling looking for money. It's really hard to build up your career to actually open a bookstore. And she feels grateful to have been able to do that. So if you're in Chicago, please go check out semicolon. It looks super it does. cool. And let us know. Mixture of library. I'm a little stuck on library, co-working space and membership only club. I mean, that is an Athenaeum librarium just sounds that- cool. <laughs> That's the $1,000 fire and blood version of a bookstore, right? I mean, that's really what that is. is can yeah, you, I mean, maybe you, you run your bookstore. Maybe you run your bookstore for a while. You do the thing that a lot of indies do of like having a membership club or a frequent shoppers club. And then maybe you can take like the most dedicated people from that and spin them off into a membership club that like you get access to the special back room yeah. of co-working space or whatever. I love the idea of a co-working space in an independent bookstore. I think it's super, Sounds I think awesome. it's super smart. I guess you're going to be fighting the math of the more square footage you devote to titles and shelves versus co-working. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how that math works. Um, I assume the more shelf space you have for sidelines or other things probably beats the premium you get for a co-working space, but I have no idea. Yeah, 
I don't know. I mean, the the only example that I have personal experience with here is a women's only co-working space in Richmond called The Broad. And its biggest membership is $250 a month for unlimited access to both yeah. the space and also all of like the social and networking events that it offers. And I think, if, I mean, if you're an independent bookstore, 250 bucks is not a small no. chunk of change. If you got a handful of people who would pay that and you had one long table, like mm. not everybody's going to be there every day. I think that's a good use of that space potentially. I'd be really interested to see it yeah. done. But um, all of the best luck to D.L. Mullen and the folks at Semicolon. May your efforts May succeed. your efforts succeed. All right, well, that's the first part of our show today. Stick around. You're going to hear me reboot and do a formal, well, formal, whatever, formal. Let's, let's just say a little more polished intro, intro for Gretchen McCulloch and her book. Uh, Rebecca, I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. I'm here with Gretchen McCulloch. She's got a new book coming out this week, if you're listening, the week of the release of the show, July 23rd, 2019. It's called Because Internet Understand the New Rules of Language. I think it's great. It's out from Penguin. I wanted to talk to her. She's the resident linguist at Wired. She used to write the same stuff at the Toast, RIP Toast. Also, the co-creator of the very great podcast, Lingthusiasm. That's a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. So if you like this kind of thing, go check it out over there. Because Internet is about language, what's going on on the Internet, state of the world as we are, or what the internet has been doing, especially to the English language. It's got emojis. It's got stuff about chat. It's really good. Highly recommend it. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining me today. Gretchen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start kind of where you start, which is from a linguist point of view, to look at the moment we're in time. And I think you're very clever and smart to think about, you know, your book is a moment of time of the internet. It's not what was the internet or something like that. We're in the moment of time. And you start by kind of explaining what gets linguists so excited about the internet from the, from the, from the point of view of what's possible now that wasn't possible before the internet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. One thing that I find really interesting about the internet and that linguists find interesting about the internet is that it's a place where you see this tremendous explosion of informal writing. And previously, we think of writing as a formal domain, books, the newspapers, they go through editors, they go through revision processes, they get typeset, they have all these conventions that get applied to them, and they're not representing the unfiltered way that we would naturally write something because there are so many steps involved. And speech has always had both formal and informal varieties. You know, the conversations you have with your friends or with your dog those are informal. And the types that you have here on the radio or that you hear in movies or plays or these kinds of formal genres are very different from that. And writing has had informal genres, but they've been kind of sidelined and marginalized, things like letters and diaries and notes on the kitchen table. And they haven't been as visible. They haven't been able to travel the way that informal internet writing can do, mm. which is what I find so fascinating. I was interested. You brought up letters a couple of times as you know a precursor, a way of thinking about informal writing. I'm working on a piece now about John Keats, which doesn't really matter except that I was reading his letters, and even those are they're informal but also formal in a different kind of way because he knows people are going to receive them. They're a physical object. Part of the informality, if I've got this right, is and I don't think you mentioned this, but I was wondering what you think about this idea that our writing of inform our informal writing on the internet we think of as ephemeral and ephemeral so it's not just informal but it's also disposable we know it's not going to be kept or at least we're not going to be keeping it and yet it is so that 
that, I guess, you know, useful for getting that my chat history from six years ago is still in Gmail, that my tweets are being indexed, that helps me forget and not, you know, not write like I'm writing an email to my professor, which I'm not really thinking about as being posterity, but it's going to be kept in some way. Well, I, I also think it depends on if you're looking at a, someone like Keats, who's also a professional writer. Right. Okay, and fair. writing, you know, if you think of Keats's letters are more like blog posts or something where it's kind of informal, but he knows that lots of people are going to be reading them. Or one of those, you know, email newsletter subscription mm. things. It's kind of informal, but he knows people are going to be reading them. He's writing to an audience. So that's somewhere, you know, formality and formality is a spectrum. Yeah. Um, and the, the book kind of comes to a head, I think, in weaving together several different strands you've been following when you get to talking about chat. As I don't, I don't know if you'd put it this way, but as the confluence of several interesting things about what people use language on the Internet for, what they use informal writing for, can you talk about the chat stream and how you're sort of imagining the chat stream as being you know, a combination of multiple things people care about when they care about communicating on the Internet? Yeah, I love chat as a genre because it's the quintessential internet genre. It is the the epitome of what you can do with informal writing online. And this is for a couple of reasons. So we talk about uh, informal language in general as a genre. It supports more interruptions than formal language. Mm. If you're giving a speech, if you're writing a book, you know, someone interrupting a speech is a heckler. They're doing antisocial behavior. They're not supposed to be doing that. Uh, if you want to interrupt a book, like you can try, but my book's still there. <laughs> you know, I don't have to hear your interruptions. Mm. Um, so informal language supports interruptions. A conversation is a back and forth. Uh, conversely, if you look at the difference between writing and speech, writing supports more words <laughs> at once because mm -hmm. we can read faster than we can hear. And because we can scan, scan back, skim back and see what else has been written previously. So we can support longer sentences, informal writing. We can support uh, more complex sentences with more relative clauses and longer words and these kinds of, um, you know, narrative devices and stuff like that in a written book compared to in a spoken speech, which is going to rely more on repetition to make sure that people can be following easily what's going on. And so when you combine these two, you get the chat stream because the chat stream has interruptions and the chat stream supports so many words. You can have two parallel conversations or more than two parallel conversations conversations going on at once. And if that's a multi-person chat room, you can be having multiple conversations with different conversational partners interwoven in an old school chat stream. But even if that's just two people, they can be carrying on two conversation mm -hmm. threads at the same time in a way that would be completely impractical in speech because you can't keep track of right. two different threads going on at once. And yet it's it's easy, it's mundane, it's routine in the chat stream to have two different conversation threads going on at once because you can each be replying to the other thread uh, and go back and forth and it, it weaves together. And I think that's just a beautiful encapsulation of what makes informal writing its own distinct genre with ties to these other types. Mm. And that relates to, I think, to, to um, how you formulize, how you understand emoji is that one thing that internet, uh, internet writing is doing is negotiating presence and absence of bodies, right? The chat yeah. is something you can't have that conversation with people in three different locations, like the group text, that, which seems to be an ascendant phenomenon now and replacing a lot of other forms that I've seen as my time on the internet. But, you know, four or five people in seven locations having an asynchronous but group conversation isn't really physically possible in any particular way, which is a gain. But the thing you lose by not needing the body is everything else that goes 
into especially informal language, which tends to be in person, it tends to be one-on-one or one to a small group of people. An emoji is a substitute for everything that isn't the actual text coming out of your mouth. Do I have that right? Well, I like to think of emoji as gesture and punctuation as a way of representing tone of voice, Mm. just because I found a lot of correlates in each of those domains, respectively. And there there may be some correlates between emoji and tone of voice or between punctuation and gesture, but the, the strongest correlates seem to happen in by dividing them into two different domains and being very specific about what each one mm. conveys. You know, a question mark can indicate a rising tone of voice, even if it's not a question, or the absence of a question mark, even if it is a question, can indicate that this question is deadpan or wry or rhetorical or sarcastic. And so being very concrete about what we mean by that, emoji can often contribute the same function as gesture. If you think about saying something like, good job with a thumbs up versus good job with uh, the middle finger, mm-hmm. that conveys something pretty different. <laughs> and I still haven't found, maybe you have, because you're better at this and I'm in, in more steeped in it, a great emoji for irony. I mean, you talk about irony and the problems of, you know, bespoke irony, punctuation, people have tried. What, do we have, do we have, have internet people agreed upon an emoji for irony? I don't think there's one single emoji for irony, just there's no one single yeah. way of doing irony because irony is subtle and multi-layered. A few that I have seen for conveying various shades of irony include the sparkle emoji, mm-hmm. uh, which can be used to convey sort of ironic enthusiasm the same way that sparkle punctuation, like the, the tilde asterisk tilde sort of thing, can convey ironic enthusiasm. Uh, I've also seen the uh, um, thinking face, you know, the one with the kind of L-shaped yeah. hand on the chin. And that can convey this sort of quizzical, like, dubiousness. Mm-hmm. So if you say, you know, what could possibly go wrong, thinking face emoji, it, that's not a genuine question at that point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. The one I've landed on, but I don't like to use it because I think it comes off as more, I don't know, dry or uh, even acerbic is just like the flat-lipped emoji just kind of a, a but it's not quite oh, right the, for it's not quite right like, for deadpan which is what i'm usually trying to do and i can't do it right i, I haven't figured myself out for that one. yeah so that reminds me of another one that people use which is the upside down smiley face yeah that's true i haven't tried which is that the kind one. of like that one's used the most people that i talk to about what they mean by it and i i love this explanation because I, I completely agree with it is you know the cartoon that has the dog with the coffee cup surrounded yes, by fire this saying this yeah. is fine this is fine, dog. That's what that emoji means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mundus and versus. You mean the opposite of what the thing you're actually saying is. Yeah, while you're saying like, it at the same and, time. and when the dog's saying this is fine, clearly everything is not fine. <laughs> if there's one thing you can tell of being surrounded by fire, it is not fine. Yes. So um, uh, the work. upside down smiley face, it's the smile is upside down, can convey that sort of like, you know here's this here's this way that I'm deliberately undermining my own message. But I think if you're trying to be really deadpan about sarcasm, maybe emoji is just not the best fit for you. You know, and in that case... Maybe, maybe just a period at the end of the sentence. Maybe just a yeah, period, like, a, the, like an actual you know, period. Dot, 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 or, yeah. or the lack of period or the lack of, mm-hmm. of capitalization and punctuation or something like that. Maybe you want something that's more deadpan and that puts you in the punctuation zone. Yeah, I got to do typography. I have to do the minimalist typography or something. I've got to go out performative minimalism. <laughs> this as, sounds as like it say. might be a good fit for you. I'm just trying yeah, to help it sounds you. Like, it sounds like I appreciate the help there. Um, another one I wanted to talk to. Consulting by Gretchen McCulloch. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could make some some money there. Um, 
The, the other one that I, it's implicit, I think, in the book, though I don't believe you articulate it fully, that you're writing not against necessarily, but in response to a certain anxiety about internet writing and what the internet is doing to language. And I feel like it's an idea that it comes in spurts. You know, you know, at the beginning, there was a lot of anxiety and hangering about, you know, what the internet is doing to writing and language and our ability to use language. And it comes up every now and again. It usually comes up if there's a, no social, a new social network. This is the one, actually. We're going to do all the bring out the same hobby horse about us making us all dumb and everything. Like Can now you, it's TikTok that's the problem. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. Same. <laughs> same, same, the same story. I'm sure it goes back to, you know, people that first used punctuation uh, in, the, in the Greeks. Like, really? You're going to use a period? Don't, that's oh, making it goes everyone back dumb. to the invention of writing. Uh, you know, Socrates was, was famously not so keen on writing because the kids won't be memorizing things properly because they'll be able to write them down and then they'll be forgetful in their minds. The calculator argument, right? That we can do multiplication with calculators. It's the calculator argument. It's the Google argument. Like now that we can Mm -hmm. Google things, you won't need to remember anything. But this was our argument was made about writing. So I guess as a a technology. with With that historical telescoping a little bit, I think that's really helpful that this is, this kind of anxiety is, you know, coeval with writing as a technology and then subsequent technological innovations. Why are we so worried over time about screwing up language? Why are we so worried about it? Like, it hasn't happened yet, but we're always on the lookout. We're always on the watchtower for the barbarians that are going to screw up our language. And I've never been able to figure out why it provokes such anxiety when there's really no historical antecedent for it actually like getting dumber through technological innovation. It's, there's, there's really no historical antecedent for it. I think that language in general is a really easy place to project our feelings about any sort of group. You know, mm. whether that's our anxieties about kids these days and modern technology or hostility towards people from other, you know, backgrounds or, you know, any sort of thing that you dislike about some group of people you can say, well, you know, maybe the people are fine, but if only they wouldn't talk like that, if only they would talk more like me. Hmm. And that's a way of saying, I don't want to actually accept people for who they are in their authentic selves. I only want to accept the assimilated version where they've made the effort to sound more like me in, or more like the people in positions of power. Hmm. And, you know, it's a similar way of saying it's, you know, it's not that I object to kids these days. It's just that the way they dress is so terrible. You know, <laughs> like the kids right. fashions they're so bad you know why can't they pull their socks up kind of thing mm. <clears throat> and it it's, hel- it's not the socks that you're objecting to here right the socks, socks are, are metonym for something else i guess exactly you know yeah. or it's not it's not that i object to those people for whatever value of those people it's just that i don't like how their food smells or something like it's it's a way of projecting your anxieties about an actual group of people into something that seems a little bit more socially palatable mm. because maybe people do have preferences when it comes to food or, or language, but it, it ends up creating these pernicious effects by mm-hmm. cloaking the objection to a particular group of people in phrases that seem like they might be more objective. If only these people would talk like more like me. Right. Yeah, and it, and it can found it sort of muddies manners and identity politics and a certain conservatism all into the same lumpy kind of a situation where it's nebulous, but also I don't know. People are very attached to it. it it's nebulous but firm, weirdly. On and how there's there's a specifically there's a specifically in the history of English. There's a there's a grammarian tradition from the 1700s and 1800s uh, where you know English 
grammar, that was when a lot of these, you know, fabled grammar rules came about and were in many cases invented out of whole cloth because English speakers had never been doing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were created as ways of letting kind of the striving middle class seem fancier and seem more prestigious and gain that sort of status. And so if your status depends on obeying these arbitrary rules, you're going to create status games for people who don't obey them because they aren't following their your arbitrary rules. But ultimately it's like like it's like wearing white after Labor Day. You know, this right. is this is how important you're like, oh you can't wear white after Labor Day. You can't split an infinitive. Like these are equally arbitrary and pointless rules. Yeah, it's um, Dr. Seuss got the, the Starbelly Sneeches in Dr. Seuss is like the most withering indictment of that kind of thinking, right? Because it, it's, it's, it's just still whether or not you have a star becomes muddled and then suddenly it's about stars, but not also about stars. And it, it has its own kind of topsy-turvy shifting sands logic to it. Um, exactly. It just I, becomes about status and it becomes about a way to to try and reinforce that status, whatever you think you have. And ultimately, you can just live a much nicer and happier life with lower blood pressure by yeah, right. relaxing and being curious about language. Like nothing's going to be bad about a world where everyone uses emoji. It's fine. It will still be fine. The sun will still come up in the morning and still go down at night. And, you know, there are many other things you can be genuinely worried about in this world and language just doesn't have to be one of them. You, at the, towards the end of the book, you, you know, you start thinking a little bit in a meta way about the book and how, you know, you, you don't, you don't know what the future holds for writing on the internet. You don't know how, you're not trying to make a um, declarative statement about even how it is right now. But I think if I've got it right, and I, and I tend to agree with you that the thing that, if you had to bet on something surviving uh, in an ongoing way in the internet is this idea of, boy, your friends in your pocket is pretty compelling stuff. And anything that lets you do more of that, feel more connected to people you want to feel connected to through technology. It may take different forms, you know, if it's holograms or AR glasses or whatever else it might be, but you wouldn't lose your shirt betting on whatever technology makes friends in your pocket more fun, interesting, and cohesive. Yeah, I think things that enable us to have better conversations with each other and richer conversations by enabling us to connect communicate our intentions more or our tone of voice more or our emotions more are ultimately really useful for people. Things that remove the friction of sending that first message, hmm. of starting that conversation. Yeah, interesting. You know, a lot of social network a lot of social networking sites really take off because they somehow make it feel easier to start. Hmm. Whether that's maybe posting a photo is it feels easier than posting something in words. Maybe having a, a pre-made gift feels a little bit easier because people are nervous. People are anxious. Sure. You know, we're worried that people are going to judge us that we don't aren't saying something interesting. Mm. So any way to, you know, filters and stickers and all of these things, they just make it a little bit easier to start a conversation or to continue a conversation. So they're, they're basically like, you know, platform icebreakers. You know, what's the first one? Yeah. If you can get the first yeah. one, I'm sure, there, I'm sure there's some study about if you can get them to do one, they'll do X number. Um, on average, after that first one. Or to make it easier to do a response to somebody else, even if you're mm. busy and you're walking down the street and you're a little bit distracted, at least you can send them a GIF. Even if you don't have time to write them a paragraph, you can give them some sort of social nudge to reinforce that you care about them. Let me get you out on this. Um, what is, you know, what's at the bleeding edge of internet language or culture that you find yourself most curious or interested in right now? What's out there that you're 
kind of you're you're looking at as an object, as a linguist and an internet person saying, huh, I wonder what this is going to be. I'm really interested in right now the evolution of memes from static images to video. Hmm. So, and there are there have been video memes for a long time, but in particular, one of the things that I'm seeing crossover, and this is on TikTok but not exclusively, is uh, there was a there's been a recent a relatively recent wave of uh, image memes that are object labeling memes where you label objects in relationship to each other. Hmm. Um, so, for example, the distracted girlfriend meme or distracted boyfriend yes. meme is an object labeling meme. You label the boyfriend, you label the girlfriend, you label the other girl. And those are their relationships to each other. And this is actually a departure when it comes to memes, because historically, a lot of memes have been interior monologue memes, mm. where you label what the person is thinking that's or the animal is thinking that's in the meme. And you're not labeling objects in relationship to each other. So this itself is interesting. And then the other wave of this, which is something that I've been seeing in videos of various format, is people playing particular types of characters, especially to a soundtrack or to something that provides the sort of same sort of context that a macro like the distracted boyfriend macro does, um, but labeling themselves as they're doing it. Huh. So... Um, huh. And in the video, you know, and in this in the video, the the audio s loop provides the the context, like the the visual does, and people are literally holding up paper signs to say. So there was a spate of them around a month or two ago when uh, you could tell people's exams were finishing and they were doing like history classes or something, mm -hmm. you know, because they'd be like, you know, <laughs> France during World War II, Germany during World War II, and like labeling them with respect to each other on particular soundtracks of like, you can't touch this kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and putting putting them in relationship to each other, clearly, you know, trying not to study for exams. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's and interesting. So, and I don't know if it's going to really burgeon into this full genre, if it was a bit of a blip on the horizon, but I'm interested in, yeah, how we how we do these types of labeling memes and how the audio loop soundtrack, which is one of the big innovations of TikTok, has enabled a meme to happen as an audio thing and then you mm. you do a different visual. Gretchen, thank you so much. And it's gonna be all right, right? That's what you're saying? It's it's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be fine. It's gonna be okay. You can you don't have to worry about language. Mm. 